Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Julie Douglas. If you tuned into our podcast recently, you might have enjoyed an episode about sensory deprivation, about sensory deprivation tanks, about uh, entering the uh, womb-to-tomb wet box. Uh, which which you don't like that term, but I take uh, issue with wet box. Yeah, yeah, it, it does sound kind of weird mm-hmm. and a little gross. But uh, but entering the, this uh, this chamber of salty water and and deprivated senses and experiencing something phenomenal. Yeah, you go into the moist box. See, that's no better, is it? <laughs> that's no better. Um, and it really is sort of an amazing experience, um, simply because you're doing something. That's pretty elementary, right? You are taking out all that sort of stimuli that's surrounding you every day. And then you are trapped with your mind, which some of us feel sometimes like we are trapped within the, the box of our mind. So you're sort of like you're trapped within a, a box within a box. I feel like in a way, when we're trapped in our own mind in our daily life, we tend it's more like we are trapped in a party with one party guest that we desperately want to annoy, uh, avoid, but they keep cornering us and talking at us. So it's right. like we're in this party. There's lots of stuff around us. i got work to do. If I don't want to do my work for some reason, I've got things I'm reading. I can always look something up on the Internet or, or do something on my to-do list. Mm-hmm. So there are all these people that I can interact with at this party. But... The, my this nagging voice in my mind keeps coming up and saying, hey, remember when you were in high school? And, oh, you remember that thing you said to your friend last week? And what are you going to do next week? You know, and, and, so, and then you're like, oh, I'm cornered by this creep again. But then you, you go on. Whereas the sensory deprivation tank is kind of like saying, all right, you and this annoying party guest are going to spend some time together. Yeah. And you're going to figure out what doesn't work here. And there's no cheese plate to, es- to escape to, right? Like right. It's just you and you. Yeah, you can't say you have to run, refresh your drink, or use the bathroom. you got to, like, fight it out. Right, right. So we both underwent this sensory deprivation yes. 60 minutes long. And uh, I will say that for, for my first session, because I did two... I put a little hand towel in the door because I was not really all that interested in sealing myself into something because I wasn't quite sure yeah. if I was claustrophobic. Now, did we describe the thing for them enough? Like um, essentially kind of like a, not as casket-like as I was hoping, and I imagine <laughs> you were maybe fearing, uh, but kind of you know like this big pod with yeah. kind of a squarish uh, like back portion because it, it has like an auto-cleaning auto and filtration system. and It's about chest high. Yeah. So it's, it was a lot higher than I thought it was going to be, which is good because you have more room to, to move around and get in and out, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it's got a little hatch that opens and closes. Um, and it's got a filtration system, very, very important for anybody who's not interested in soaking in someone else's body stuff. Yeah. And the, and the water itself is uh, is high salt content. I mean, mm-hmm. how many how many pounds was like eight hundred pounds, pounds of Epsom, Epsom salt. salt, right? Yeah, so you're just you're soaking in that, not just soaking it, floating on it because you float in water that's salty, and uh, and then the the the, uh, the hatch is closed or partially closed. Yeah, uh, and it that cuts out most of the sound. Also, you're using wax waxy earplugs. Yes, yeah, like little bits of bubble gum that go in your ear. Uh, you're wearing those, so that's helping to deaden out the sound as well. And if, keep the water out. And keep the water out. Uh, your eyes are kept mostly, I mean, your, your eyes are kept above the water because you're floating mm-hmm. on your back. And uh, and then the hatch is closed or partially closed, thus um, obscuring uh, light. Right. And the water is heated to, I believe it's, what, uh, 33 degrees Celsius? 
either 30 or 33 and 99 degrees Fahrenheit. Yeah, so the so, idea here is you're not like, ooh, this water's a little chilly or, oh, this is so nice and warm, uh, but more it's in, it's in keeping with your body. So the, the idea is that it blurs the line between where your flesh ends and the water begins. Right. The borders are just supposed to fall away, and in some sense they, they certainly do that. Yeah, except if you have a, a scratch on you or something, and then the salt water will let you know where your flesh ends and the water begins. And that's something they warn you about. There's like a tub of Vaseline on top of the tank that you're supposed to put on your cuts before you go in. Mm-hmm. If you, I mean, in, ideally, if you just you know ran through a thorn bush, you probably should skip going to the the sensory deprivation tank that day until you're... you're or if you've just shaved. Or you've just shaved, yeah. yeah. Uh, and even then, though, if you get like a little sting, because I went in there and I I was not expecting that, and it uh, stung a little bit, but then you sort of get used to it and it goes away, the feeling goes away. Yeah, and I will say the, the first time I floated, a lot of the, the float was dealing with this the limited stimuli that I had access to. In other words, you know, I, oh, I have many more bug bites than I knew of because yeah. now this is stinging and it's much more amplified right. because I have nothing else to concentrate on. Um, there's also a particular smell to the water and I'm attributing that to the Epsom salt. Yeah, and also just sort of, I mean, it is essentially kind of a enclosed sort of hot tub type environment. Mm-hmm. So if you've, if you've ever owned a hot tub or frequently use a hot tub, you know there are certain smells associated with that I'm talking about a functioning hot tub. I'm not talking like a, a funky, um, you know, disease-ridden hot tub. But it, in other words, what I'm saying is that even though you're deprivate, deprivating certain senses, mm-hmm. uh, your sense of smell is still going to be intact unless you plug up your nose, I guess. Um, so you are going to get certain salty, hot tubby odors. And this is all stuff for the mind to chew on while you are immersed in this water, right? Yes. Because Again, you, you you have very limited stuff here to work with. So um, that doesn't mean that your entire float you would be, you know, sitting here uh, being driven crazy by these different elements. It's just sort of easing into this process. And, of course, it is different for every single person who floats. Yeah. Now, the feel of it, um, we should we should talk about next. I was I knew I was going to be floating, but I haven't really floated in anything like this before. Mm-hmm. Like, I've never been to the Dead Sea or anything like that. So... This was a first for me, and it was really kind of surprising because I, I climbed into it, uh, and uh, and you you climb you you don't think you have to climb into it naked, but it's it's implied that you should. It is because again, you become much more aware of what stimuli is there. So if you have a bathing suit on, then you're going to be aware yeah. of of the elastic or or whatnot. And ultimately, it's more hygienic that way because uh, I, I think I've talked about saunas a bit before. Um, you know, in the U.S., everyone's going into a sauna with some sort of bathing suit on, uh, whereas in uh, in Europe, and so you're going to encounter more of a a, a, a nude trend in your saunas, mm-hmm. and um, and and the nude trend is is arguably far more sanitary because it's you don't know where the, the bathing suits have been or how clean those are. People are bringing in these soggy, um, you know, lower torso garments that have been soaking in water and what and, and you know whatever else. So uh, ultimately, I think I think that everyone going into the isolation tank naked is really better for everyone. Involved. Right. Then you're taking a shower before and after as well. Yeah, those are yeah. the rules. Those are the rules. What was I talking about before we got on that round? I was talking about the feeling. Yes. Yeah, so I climbed in, and then I you, and you kind of slip the last little bit. It's kind of like going into a torpedo tube, mm-hmm. and then suddenly I'm just floating, and it's it's really 
weird sensation if you never felt it before. Yeah, because you can't see anything. So um, we talked about this in the episode, I believe, about the quietest room in the world, that even just deprived of your auditory cues, you begin to lose your sense of where you are in time and space. So that's why people in the quietest room in the world at the Orfield Labs, they have to sit down after 30 minutes because they don't really feel like they're pinned in space and time. Well, think of yourself in this tank floating um, naked and those borders of yourself melting away. And this is when people begin to feel as though they're spinning inside. And some people feel like they're spinning really, really fast or they're yeah. just kind of cruising around. But it's a very odd feeling. Well, I kept having this this feeling, and this would happen sort of the more I was in there. Um, you know, I'm, I'm floating, and I'm floating essentially on a um, on a horizontal plane. And but there's a little bobbing around, and occasionally your 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 hand, your foot will touch the side. And then I would get get the I would get this feeling as if the horizontal plane were tipping forward, mm-hmm. but that I was staying in one place. And then kind of a feeling like I was shooting down a tube. So there's this like false feeling of movement as well. Um, and it never felt woozy or anything. I didn't feel like I was going to be sick or like I was on a roller coaster exactly. Mm-hmm. But it was this, this, this feeling of movement that I knew wasn't actually happening. Yeah. And how did your brain deal with that? You know, did you were you consumed by it or? Um, I was kind of like thinking, whoa! I really feel like I'm moving, and I would picture myself in like a plane of darkness, um, you know, and then being tipped forward. Mm-hmm. And then occasionally, and this is where I got into trouble a little bit. Uh, is that I would sort of I feel myself tipping forward, so I tip my head back a little bit, presumably to keep my head above the water. Mm-hmm. But of course, my since the water plane wasn't actually tilting, all I managed to do was uh, was get a little salt water in my eyes. Yeah, and it's really interesting. All these little things, all this minutia, you begin to sort of get caught up with, and then your body becomes accepting of it eventually mm-hmm. because it adapts and I thought that was the fascinating part of all of this is that here we are in, in just completely bombarded by everything um, by all the little undercurrents of sound of you know the state of, of, of our hunger or you know if we're super hungry or not very hungry at all or not feeling great um, the interactions with everybody all the data we're taking in with our eyes you shut all of that out and the brain kind of goes a little bit, I will say nuts, like light nuts, good nuts, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then adapts to that. And you begin to feel that release into the water. And I think that is the key point that, that everybody has talked about anecdotally is, you know, this is, this is what the tank is really good for is that you do have a release and your, your brain and your body finally decide to just sort of submit to the experience. And things do get quiet. And I'm not going to say that I had a completely, you know, meditative state, you know, after 20 minutes. Who knows? Because time is non-existent in the tank. Yeah. Like, basically, they tell you, don't think about time because a number of things will happen. You'll hear the filtration system kick in mm-hmm. at the end. And then they'll make some music play in the room. And then if that doesn't work, they'll come and knock on the door. Yeah. So the idea is don't worry about how close you are to the finish line. We'll tell you when your time is up. Right. It's just sort of slipping in and out of different states. Um, So that was, to me, one of the most interesting things. Altered states, which we talked about, is that the main thing that comes out of this experience is that people are having altered states of consciousness. Now you meant you were talking about we're talking about sound there. I one of the impressions I definitely had is that I you know I'm I'm in there I'm in my own head and then time sort of starts to slip by mm-hmm. and then suddenly I'm hearing this noise and it sounds like the crashing of waves on a beach. 
and then I oh, realize right. that it's my own breathing mm-hmm. because I have the I have the plugs in. I'm in the in the water, and uh, and so most of the noises. I mean, pretty much all the noises I'm hearing is, is simply the noises of my body. Mm-hmm. So I'm hearing my breathing, and that was a really interesting experience because it, it did feel like waves crashing and sound like waves crashing. I had that same experience, and I thought, wow, it sounds like I'm on the beach. And then same thing. I was startled to realize that it was just my own breath. Um, and you can hear your your heart beating. Mm-hmm. Um, at one point, I decided that the towel in in the door that just had the crack of light coming through was not good because I would sort of go into these into the void of nothingness and be taken out when I floated near the top where that crack of light was. And, and again, you you left that there because you you were maybe a little claustrophobic. I didn't know. Yeah. You know, I'd never been sealed into anything. Um, I didn't wasn't crazy about the idea, honestly. Mm-hmm. Um, so I thought I'll just do that, and then I know that I have. You know, I can just push it open, which I could do anyway. But once I got past the fear of that, I wanted to take it out. But here's the thing. I started to lift my head maybe a couple of inches. Mm-hmm. And I was so incredibly heavy and so shocked by that that I just said, never mind. Because it felt like my, my neck weighed a 1,000 pounds. Yeah. And that's when I realized the extent to which my body had just become entirely relaxed, as well as my mind. Yeah. All right, well, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we are going to uh, enter one of the more obvious uh, realms of the senses here that is uh, that is being taken away from us in the tank. We're going to talk about sight, and we're going to talk about darkness. And then after that, we're also going to try and catch up on a little listener man. All right, we're back, and uh, now it's time to talk about the darkness and talk about uh, the darkness, the darkness, what, about what our encounters with the darkness inside of the tank. All right, so are you talking about hallucinations? Yes. Yes. Okay. Uh, well, the first time I really, like I said, it was sort of a struggle between being present and letting myself go, and being preoccupied with what was going on with my body or you know my stomach gurgling. Um, but I did see. <laughs> A crusty eyeball staring at me. Whoa. Which I wasn't... Describe crusty. Crusty is sort of... well, Like sleep dust? Sort of like opaque-looking eyeball that just looked crusty and old. Hmm. And I wasn't... I mean, I wasn't thrilled with that. I wasn't scared by it. But uh, no, it was just sort of, like I said, opaque-looking. Okay. And that was the extent of that. But the second time I floated, by the way, it just... When I went back in... It's, it's amazing how your brain just maps all this stuff out and, and is ready for the experience. The smell, everything, the water temperature, none of this was a surprise to me. So I was able to get into that altered state much quicker. And the second time, I just sort of saw a bunch of very odd things, like um, as if I were a lizard crawling up a rock and seeing my little lizard arms crawling up. Well, Those sorts of things. And not to mention having just um, a lot of very interesting thoughts about either how I operate in the world or things I've experienced. Hmm. Um, I wouldn't call them revelations, but things that were sort of important that I needed to maybe acknowledge or discuss with myself. Yeah. And I had trapped myself in a box to do so. Yeah, you're you're taking that person that corners you at the party, you're trapping them in, in the box with you, and then you may think to, to realize, I should maybe ask them about their job. Maybe I should, right, right. Or maybe we have some or unresolved issue I should talk about with this uh, part of myself. And it was and it, really interesting because, as you say, there are so many things that we can occupy our brains with, mm-hmm. you know, with trying to escape that person at the party that um, when you 
are in that space and it's just you and you, then it becomes like, well, this is very important. And those sort of things do rise to the surface and you do have to deal with them, albeit in a good way. I don't mean to say that, you know, there's any sort of strife associated with this. Hmm. Now, uh, when you were picturing yourself as a lizard and uh, and some more things, were, were these colorful in any way? Were, were they like... No, it was more like desert colors. Okay. Does that make sense? It's like more sort of fitting in with the terrain that I was scaling. Okay, okay cool. You? Oh, well, with me, um, well, I basically, you know, I go into the tank and it's all dark and your eyes kind of adjust to a, you know, sort of dancing lights a little bit, you know, at first. And after a while, I'd been in there and I'd had the experience hearing the, the ocean. And then I... I, I was observing some light, and at first I thought that light was leaking in through the tank. And my so my first thought was, well, this is kind of a crappy sensory deprivation tank <laughs> because there's all this light leaking into it, or somebody has come into the room and opened a window or something, uh, or the or something's ajar. And then I, I quickly realized that that this was not actual light. I was seeing light. Mm-hmm. I was seeing this kind of gray light as if it were leaking in to the, the tank, though it wasn't actually illuminating anything. Like I couldn't see my body or anything. Mm-hmm. I was just seeing light, uh, uh, specifically at the, the, the edges of my sight. And uh, as I sort of watched the, the light some more, I saw like a human skull, um, like a gray light made of the same gray light that I was perceiving, a human wow. skull made of this rotating. And, uh, of course, if, if you know me, then you know it probably doesn't take much for me to think or imagine a skull, so I don't know. Uh, but at any rate, Say hello, it. dear Horatio. No, I did, I did not speak to it. <laughs> but I saw it rotating there, and then that kind of went away, and I saw, like, a, like a whole bunch of, uh, like, like gray sea anemone ten- mm-hmm. tentacles of the, like, well, they're not really tentacles. Are they tentacles? I'm, I'm not up on my sea anemone anatomy. No, I don't uh, believe they are. But, well, uh, I mean, maybe, uh, maybe they are, but they don't remind me of tentacles yeah. because they're thinner, right? Yeah, it's uh, those appendages that they have. Right. Um, uh, so they were kind of dancing there, just kind of uh, undulating as if in a sea current. And uh, they were also composed of that same sort of gray light, almost kind of a, an ectoplasmy substance uh, as the skull. And then that kind of faded away, and I didn't have any more visual hallucinations for the remainder of the, uh, the episode. Um, I have to share with you that the first time that I floated, I did find myself at one point giggling, just crazy giggling. Mm-hmm. And I was sort of like afterward afraid of, well, I wonder if they heard me in the other room. But the, the, the reason I was giggling is because they were things that I started to think about that seemed so important that I was stressed out about that in the light of that experience, mm-hmm. I just, it became hilarious. Huh. And I will say that after my second float, a couple hours after that, uh, my husband was, you know, we were talking about something, fixing dinner, and he started stressing out about something. And I started laughing again at hmm. him because he was stressed out. I was still in this state. And he was like, oh. <laughs> he was like, seriously, is this how you're going to be all night? Um, so I will say that the second time I really felt like the after effects of that were much more pronounced, that I was viewing the world a little bit more outside of myself and not trying to make my, my husband feel bad by laughing at him, but it was funny. <laughs> Time was really strange in the, in the tank because when I first got in, you know, everything was sort of new and I'm taking it in and then nothing was really happening. And I started thinking, Ooh, I'm going to be in here an hour. <laughs> I, 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 and I, I actually started thinking, what if I just uh, would 
how badly would the, the lady at the front judge me if I left after 15 minutes? You know, how how much of a of a square would I appear to be if that was my story? <laughs> I I sat there for 15 minutes, so I just got wet, so I just left. You know, but but then I, I stayed there longer, and eventually I I did lose complete track of time. So when the when the the filtration system finally kicked in and the music came on, mm-hmm. I was really shocked. I was like, wow, I can't believe an hour's passed. Yeah, it was interesting to talk to Marilyn. She she's the person at the um, Harmony Wellness and Yoga Center mm-hmm. in, in uh, Tucker, Georgia. In Tucker, Georgia, and she was saying that um, she says the tank is the teacher. Which, by the way, the tank is made by Samadhi, uh, which is the Samadhi, and is this idea of um, being the tool of meditation, right? Mm-hmm. And Samadhi, the company John C. Lilly, actually helped to develop this current iteration of of the tank by the oh, way cool. so we were in a john C. Lilly, C. Lilly approved tank awesome um but anyway she was saying that the, the tank is uh, essentially the teacher and that she said that there was one person who got out after 15 minutes and he said that he kept spinning and spinning and spinning or felt like he was spinning uncontrollably he realized that his mind was so disordered and was always spinning and he couldn't stop it, and so he decided that he would get out. And she said, you know, even though he just had a 15-minute experience, he sort of had the breakthrough of realizing that his life was in such disorder because of his his mind. Hmm. Um, so she was saying, you know, there's something to be learned from every single moment that you're in there. But that being said, as you said, you just don't really realize time is passing, or you do, and you're trying to tag it, but the brain isn't quite letting you. And so I thought it would be interesting just to drop in um, that there was some research by neurophysiologists and chemists who were working on time processing, and they showed how emotions can speed up or slow down our perception of time. In our last episode, you actually touched on this, too, about how emotion can color time perception. Uh, in 2011, Professor Droit Volette and Sandrine Gill published a study on emotional states, and uh, they did this by having their volunteers watch films and seeing how that affected their sense of time. So these students, these volunteers, were uh, looking at films like horror movies like The Blair Witch Project, Scream, and The Shining. Um, and then they looked at film, really sad films like City of Angels, Philadelphia, Dangerous Minds. Um, a th- that's what they say is a sad movie. Uh, a third category was neutral footage. So weather forecasts, um, stock market updates. Some people could think that was sad, by the way. <laughs> uh, and then they asked the students to estimate the duration of, of visual stimulus, like how long they were looking at this or experiencing this. And they found that feared sorted time and the stimulus being perceived was much longer than it actually was. And that fear prompted a state of arousal that speeded up the rate of the internal clock. And the state also involved dilated pupils, higher pulse rate, increased blood pressure, you know, all the, the, huh. the known quantities. So so in the fearful situation, it seemed to last longer than it actually was. Isn't it interesting, though, because we always think about fear, something fearful happening, like it happened just in a split second. But we also know that when you feel like you're under attack, that things do slow down. They seem to slow down because you're trying to take in every single element of what you're experiencing, which is why your pupils dilate, right? Huh. Well, that reminds me of, like, recently I was looking up... Um, a clip from The Ring, the American remake, mm-hmm. um, and I was look. It was looking up the scene where um, Samara, the the, the ghost slash entity, uh, emerges from the television set, and I was surprised at how short that segment was when I saw it. You know, on on, on a YouTube clip as being, and I forget how long it was, but you know, you saw the clear time yeah. stamp of stamp of when it began and when it ended, and I was like, wow, that really felt like a much longer scene when I saw it the first time. 
Right. So because you, you are, as we know, with our mirror neurons, it's sort of in empathy going through the experience, right? And, and, and things felt sort of drawn out. Um, now they found out that sadness does not affect our perception of time. And they thought that it would, that it would slow it down or speed it up. Um, and they feel like the emotion that was felt while watching the film wasn't strong enough to slow down physiological functions. Now, that does not mean that um, severe depression is not affected in this way. They were taking people who were, quote-unquote, healthy volunteers who didn't have any depression problems and sort of measuring it that way. That doesn't mean that, you know, um, people who do suffer from severe depression don't experience hmm. time dilation, right? Anyway, so I thought this was just sort of interesting information to add when we were talking about taking all that stimuli out in the tank mm-hmm. and trying to gauge time. Well, it's kind of like uh, it's kind of like in Dungeons and Dragons where you have like a sword and it does a certain amount of base damage, but then if it's magical, then it'll have like a, a modifier of a plus three or a plus two. But then if the individual is in a stressful situation or he's cursed or something, you have maybe a modifier of a negative one. Mm-hmm. And, and all of that adds up to what the sword's actual power is. So in a sense, when you go into uh, a, a tank like this, you are removing some of the modifiers on your, uh, on your um, appreciation of time and your experience of time, the things that make it speed up and the things that slow it down. Well, you know, we, we've talked so much about the default mode network and this idea that this is the center of the ego in the self, and that's mm-hmm. where all this chatter happens. And when we have excessive chatter, this leads to depression, right? Because you you get sort of caught up in this sort of I, I, I-ness of the experience. Um, so it's kind of funny. You would think that if you put yourself in the tank, that this default mode network might go crazy, right? And be right. like, oh, this is the opportunity just to... To really focus on the self, but because the opposite as we, as happens. Because as we discussed before, sensory deprivation is used as a mode of, of enhanced interrogation or, mm-hmm. or light torture. So there, there is definitely a dark side to it. So uh, you could see where you would enter the situation thinking, well, I'm going to go crazy in there and turn into a Neanderthal. <laughs> but it didn't happen to us, and it doesn't happen to most people. Yeah, I don't think so. So yeah, in the end, uh, I know you you went once, and you went the second time, and, uh, and, and found it even more... Uh, Amazing. And mm-hmm. you have, uh, what, two more scheduled? I do. To yeah. continue the journey? Yeah. Well, that's, that's pretty cool because when I left, she, you know, she was telling me, um, well, you, you know, the, the no float is like the, the next or the mm-hmm. one before it. Each one's different. And to really understand it, you need to come back for a second one, which, you know, part of that I'm, I'm thinking, well, of course you want me to come back for a second one because I have to pay for it. Um, and obviously you want to encourage, it's a business, you want people to come back in mm-hmm. and be a repeat uh, listener. But from your experience, it sounds like that is definitely the case. And, and it makes sense, because the first time you're in there, you're just experiencing the tank for the first time. And uh, the next time you can focus less on the tank and more on the experience. Well, and um, Marilyn was saying that there's a recovery group uh, that she works with that also uses the tank, and it's very effective. And I thought about that afterward, and I thought, it, it, it I can completely see that um, being very therapeutic because you are you are in a space where you ha- where you have to confront the way that your mind is working mm-hmm. and uh, not just working but some of the falsities that we tend to wrap ourselves in yeah um, you know there's no escaping that go sit in the corner and think about what you've done kind of a little bit corner. a little bit in fact I have a quote here that I thought that I would read that 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 um pairs up with this pretty nicely. Um, and this is a sutra from the ancient Sanskrit text called the Vigyan Bhairava Tantra. 
And Vijnana means wisdom and insight, perception that is free of thought. And Bhairava means the fearsome form of Shiva, in this ah, case, yes. consciousness, which destroys ignorance and mental conditioning. Um, I've also seen this translated as the joy and terror of realizing oneness with the soul. Um, the text is thought to date back to 800 AD, and it's a collection of 112 meditation techniques using the senses as a point of departure. So it seemed pretty fitting to cap this section off with. Uh, the quote is, attend to the skin as a subtle boundary containing vastness. Enter that shimmering and pulsing vastness. Discover that you are not separate from anything there. And there is no other. No object to meditate upon that is not you. Hmm. That's nice. All right. Well, uh, on that note, let us call over the robot uh, so that we may catch up on a little listener mail. All right. This one comes to us from Marta. Not to be confused with our, our our transportation system, public transportation system here in here in Atlanta, but uh, um, Marta, as in a person, Marta writes in and says, "Hey guys, I just finished listening to your Eating Alive podcast, and I can't avoid thinking about the book I recently listened to by Christopher Moore, Fluke, or I Know Why the Winged Whale Sings. It's an amazingly funny tale of a biologist who is actually eaten alive whole by a whale, and that's just the start. It's fantasy mixed with real science and environmental questions, all wrapped up in smart humor. I totally recommend it to you." Uh, and, and this is uh, this is. Uh, have you ever read anything by Christopher Moore? I have not. Christopher Moore, I, I can personally vouch, uh, is is a, is a fine author and well worth uh, reading. I've I've read read a book he wrote called Lamb, mm-hmm. which is uh, a fictional, uh, humorous at times, but also uh, surprisingly poignant um, account of uh, the life of Jesus, the Lost Years. Where he, and he goes on adventures, and he has this. It's told by his friend. Uh, his name is friend was Biff. The Lost Years. Yeah. So okay. he has this kind of. Uh, he has his friend Biff, who's talking about his travels with Jesus, and they end up Biff. Th- Biff. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And they travel to India, and uh, they fight a demon at one point. So they go on adventures. <laughs> it's a fun book, but also it's not one where it's like let's just have some stupid adventures with Jesus and and make fun of uh, you know somebody's faith or something. Like it's a it's a really poignant uh, book as well as a hilarious one. And then he also wrote one called Fool which is kind of a medieval Shakespearean story that brings in elements of a few different uh, Shakespeare uh, plays, but it's, and it's told from the point of view of a fool. And uh, and that one's just a lot of fun, especially for any Shakespeare buffs out there. Um, I highly recommend that one. So uh, anyway, Marta continues. She says, just to close, uh, I didn't write in at the time regarding the Leprechaun's podcast and the migraines that can cause visual delusions, but I was amazed by the exact description you made of whole scenes I read in uh, Haruki Murakami's tales, particularly the small creatures coming out of the TV. It's kind of a recurrent theme in his writing, and I was surprised to find out it might be because he suffers from migraine, migraines. Thanks for so much, Fantastic work, Marta from Portugal. All right, very cool. Um, speaking of books, I wanted to interject that um, I am in the middle of reading the Hitman's Guide to House Cleaning. Oh, cool! If anybody has picked that up and you are shocked by the language, <laughs> I apologize. Uh, if anybody has picked it up and they are sort of delighted by how uh, how crazy pulp fictiony crime this is, then then I hope you're enjoying it. Um, I have to say that I'm struggling between both of those hemispheres. All right. Well, here's our next one. This one is from uh, Eric, uh, frequent uh, contributor to the listener mail section. He says, uh, he's responding to our ventriloquism episode. He says, when I was seven or eight, I was interested in ventriloquism. My parents got me a dummy, and I started learning the art. I was having fun until while watching The Twilight Zone, I saw The Dummy. 
the episode titled The Dummy. It scared the ever-living blank out of me. What made it so bad was my dummy looked exactly the same as the one on the show. So I had nightmares for weeks after, and it still creeps me out like crazy. Uh, many years later, I saw the episode again with my mother. I told her how much this episode scared me, especially because I had a dummy like the one in the episode. She told me she wondered why she had found my dummy under my bed with its arms, legs, and head torn off. <laughs> Killing and dismembering my own dummy also led to nightmares where it tried to take revenge on me. Love this episode. Thanks. Wow. I mean, we talked a lot about the relationship of, of the, the puppeteer and the puppet. Yeah. And how you feel with some sort of like a, you know, like loyalty to it or disloyalty in this yeah. case. So it's interesting to hear that. And also interesting to learn that, that Eric has uh, committed uh, ventriloc- ventriloquicide? Puppet- Puppeticide. Yeah, he killed the yeah. puppet. But it's uh, it, it's it's quite a it's qu- quite a little story you create in our head there. Uh, yeah, I don't judge. I have uh, to say, if if I if same thing had happened to me at that tender age, I might do the same. Well, these these you know stories, be it a horror movie or horror show, you watch them at too young an age, and something something creepy happens with with something in the real world, it can freak you out. Like I remember watching Poltergeist at way too young an age. And there's that whole scene where like uh, stuff starts weird starts happening in the mm-hmm. night, and then the door opens, and there's also the tree branches. Yeah, the tapping. tree branch tapping. So like yeah. for ages, like uh, the idea of a tree branch tapping against my window that was horrifying. Yeah. And I think there's a weird puppet, like a kind of a Harlequin-looking puppet, in there as well. And a clown, I believe. Yeah. Yep. Speaking of clowns and Harlequins, I wanted to point out in the past we've talked about clowns a bit and about scary clowns, and we've we've never done an episode on clowning traditions, though Pop Stuff did one where they mm-hmm. go into a lot of the history. I mean, it gets really interesting. You know, you look at various Native American traditions and, and just how important the, the clown or the fool or the harlequin is. Uh, I'm currently reading a horror short story by Thomas uh, Ligotti called the, the Last Feast of Harlequin. And uh, so far, it's pretty creepy because there's a there's a, an anthropologist who's investigating a, like a Lovecraftian um, uh, northeastern uh, town that has uh, some sort of rich and possibly grotesque Harlequin tradition. But he's real excited about going because he also uh, partakes in clowning himself mm-hmm. and is into juggling. And so I, mm. I don't know where it's going to go, but it's probably going to scare me. What's the grotesque part, I have to wonder? What's the grotesque? Well, there's... Uh, this- like grotesquerie, meaning like exaggeration or like disgusting? Well, I'm not sure because at this point in the story, I haven't finished it yet, but uh, there's some sort of weird Harlequin... Uh, type of uh, ceremony that goes on, so some sort mm. of clowning going about, but then also some sort of uh, some sort of belief system that is really heavy on the cyclical idea that that maybe we begin as worms and we end as worms. So there's bound to be something kind of corpsey in there. I don't know. I, I'm not that familiar with this author yet, so it's all kind of new. To yeah. Me. Well, now I'm intrigued. <laughs> All right, here's another one about our ventriloquism episode. This one comes from David. David writes in and says, Hi, happened to come across your ventriloquism cast, and I loved it. I was especially interested in the tethered-to-an-object idea, which goes well beyond ventriloquism. You might be interested in my book in the uh, Rutledge series, Critical Voices in Art, Theory, and Culture. The book is Art and Ventriloquism, and is really a way of showcasing ventriloquism as a metaphor and performance act in many aspects of philosophers, like Nietzsche, Foucault, Plato, Derrida, and in many philosophical areas, but especially aesthetics. By unpacking the metaphor, I mean several of the things uh, you two spoke about, such as speaking in other voices, the Greek notion of ecstatic, of being beside oneself, illusion without deception, the animation of inanimate objects, and so forth. I'm sure you are uh, busy with the next podcast, but if you chance to check out the, the book, do so. Thanks for the cast. We'll be sure to listen regularly. Best, 
David. Uh, and well, since David's an author, I, let me go ahead and give you his name so you can look that up if, if that uh, interests you. That's uh, David uh, Goldblatt, Goldblatt. So that's D A V I D G O L D B L A T T. And the, 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 that again is the Rutledge series, Critical Voices in Art, Theory, and Culture. And the book is Art and Ventriloquism. So that sounds interesting. I'm, I'm going to have to seek that out myself. And, yeah. Uh, and that would probably interest uh, some of our listeners as well. That sounds really cool. Um, I actually wrote a paper, a, a Derrida paper, and I think it was, I, I won't be able to remember the content so well, mm-hmm. but I believe the title was Dwelling in the Tomb of A. So if there's anybody out there who has studied Derrida, you know probably a sense of, of what I'm talking about there, but um, I can't help but sort of laughing about that title now. All right, we also heard from Fran, and she contacted us about our episode on Finnish education. She wanted to point out that we referred to Finland as a Scandinavian country and uh, that we should not have. She is correct. We should have referred to it more in the general sense as a Nordic country, so I wanted to say that. She also said that uh, she, she wanted to take some issue with us referring to uh, Finland as is uh, becoming independent from Russia in the 60s. And I just wanted to point out that we did not say that Finland became independent from Russia in the 60s. What we said is that they came out of the cocoon of influence from Russia in the 60s. Okay, Doug. Well, let's look at one last bit of listener mail. And this one comes to us from uh, Brian. Uh, Brian writes in and says, Hey, guys, I just listened to your Cat Parasite episode, and one of the listener emails about your Art Freakout episode made me take notice. You proposed that many uh, uh, that maybe people in Italy had a strip mall syndrome. Uh, in this, we were talking about how when what you know Americans that live in strip mall uh, country travel to, say, Italy, mm-hmm. go to one of the amazing museums there, or see some of the, the historical sites, and mm-hmm. it's just too much. You end up getting the Stendhal syndrome, where it just overpowers you, and maybe you pass out. Right, so someone from Rome, for instance, who is is, is, uh, just surrounded by all this antiquity, if they were to go to a strip mall in America, what would happen? Yeah. So uh, Brian says, uh, I have had a version of this. I've lived in several cities in Europe and the U.S., but the only big reaction I remember from Culture Shock came when I moved back home to the Twin Cities after living in New York City for a few years. Grocery stores, uh, any stores really, are diminutive in New York City because space is very expensive. Uh, this isn't true in the cities. The first time I went to a large grocery store, I had a freak out. The scale of the place, the ceiling so high they could contain their own weather patterns, the 40 <laughs> types of yellow mustard, not to mention brown, etc., and the terrible use of space. My wife had to steer the cart as I fought hyper ventilating. This hasn't happened since, but I can remember the sensation viscerally. I'm going to have to go back and listen to the whole episode. Thanks for some great content. Cheers, Brian. Uh, I think he brings up a really good point, because I've been in cities for a while that had smaller grocery stores, and I know exactly what Mm -hmm. it means. I'm thinking about Star Market and Boston Star Market. And then coming back to Atlanta and then being in these big box retailers, and it is sort of disorienting to to be in, in this huge hall of consumerism. Yeah. I mean, even here in Atlanta, where we have plenty of big stores and a lot of sprawl, uh, I tend to not go to Walmart a lot. But So when I do, it is always a, a bit of insanity because it's so big and there's just so much stuff and there's just vast distances. Like, oh, I the, the grocery th- item I need is on the other side of the store. It's time for an enormous walk. And, you know, then it's the, their idea of a, of a quick checkout is like 50 items or less or something. But anyway, it's a whole rant. Yeah, and, you know, there's this other thing to compound it, which is Sam's or Costco, right? You can go oh, down goodness. an aisle and you can see the the... the largest jar of peanut butter that you've ever seen in your life that's bigger than your head mm-hmm. uh, and just jars and jars of them and it's it's sort of like being like Alice in Wonderland yeah 
Well, there you go. Um, hey, if any of you have something you would like to share with us about giant jars of peanut butter in Wonderland or about uh, Stendhal Syndrome at the strip mall, about sensory deprivation, uh, this episode, we ended up putting this out. Actually, we ended up recording this the day after our initial episode aired, so it didn't really leave any time for, for you guys and girls to uh, to respond with your own stories of sensory deprivation. So feel free to send those in, because we'll still hopefully read read those in future episodes. Uh, you can find us in a number of ways to interact with us, to catch up on past episodes and see what we're up to. Our mothership is Stuff to Blow Your Mind. That's where our blogs are. That's where everything that we do winds up there one way or another. And that is StuffToBlowYourMind.com. And you can also find us on various social media networks. You can find us on uh, Facebook is Stuff to Blow Your Mind, on Tumblr is Stuff to Blow Your Mind, on uh, Twitter we are Blow the Mind, and on YouTube we are Mind Stuff Show. And you can always send us a line at BlowTheMind at Discovery.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Thank <laughs> you.